Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Juan Solano. Today's guest is Dr. Alan Tidwell. Dr. Tidwell is a professor of the practice and director of the Center for Australian, New Zealand, and Pacific Studies, CANZIPS, at the Georgetown University Walsh School of Foreign Service. His areas of interest include the Australian-American Alliance, the politics of foreign affairs, smaller states of Oceania, and conflict resolution. His recent publications have focused on subnational actors in the Indo-Pacific, Australia's diplomatic engagement with the U.S., and the strategies of small state advocacy in Washington. Currently, he serves on the United States Institute of Peace's senior study group concerning China's impact on peace and security in the North Pacific's freely associated states. Prior to joining Georgetown University, he was a program officer with the USIP, where he specialized in conflict resolution and capacity building in maritime Southeast Asia. In 1992, Dr. Tidwell, a Washington, D.C. native, moved to Sydney, Australia, where he was a senior lecturer at the Graduate School of Management, specializing in conflict resolution and negotiation. He also served as the research director of the Australian Center for American Studies at Sydney University. Dr. Tidwell holds a PhD in international relations from the University of Kent, a master's degree in professional ethics from the University of New South Wales, and a master of science conflict management from George Mason University. Good afternoon, Dr. Tidwell, and welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Dr. Titbull, help us understand, first of all, which region of the world we're talking about here. I mean, many people use the word, the word Oceania, others use the Pacific. We have heard of words such as Melanesia, Polynesia, Micronesia. But what's the best way of calling this area? And what do we mean with the use of each of these terms when we use them? Sure, I'd be happy to touch on those. Um, in, in one respect, you know, you could imagine that for many people, the difference between Oceania and the Pacific is just really, you know, they're synonyms for one another. They're interchangeable terms. And in fact, uh, I would have said in government service uh, up until really about 2017, the term Pacific, Pacific Island countries, the Pacific was the dominant uh, term that was used to really describe all of those island countries and territories in the Pacific Ocean. And it, it, for some, it might have included Australia and New Zealand, and it might not. This is one of the great challenges. You're never quite sure precisely what people are talking about. But in the broad, uh, up until about 2017, the Pacific and Oceania would have been synonyms of one another. And Oceania would have been seen by many to be sort of an older construct. Uh, it was from another era. Um, I'm a bit older than you. And when I was a child in grade school, Oceania was the common term that, that I was introduced to. The Trump administration and, and others, not just the Trump administration, but there was a move uh, around 2016, 2017 to embrace this term Oceania. And the Trump administration in the National Security Council created a desk of Oceania. And in that desk, they gave the desk officer the responsibility for all of the island states, those small Pacific island states, as well as Australia and New Zealand. And so the administration had hearkened back to that old formulation of Oceania that included all the small islands, as well as the continent of Australia and the large island country of New Zealand. There are those though, who would use the term Oceania and exclude Australia and New Zealand. So I don't wanna belabor the point, but suffice to say, it can mean whatever you want it to mean, but there's a general trend 
that Oceania has broadly included uh, Australia and New Zealand, whereas the Pacific excludes those two uh, larger and uh, more economically complex countries. You also asked the question, though, about Melanesia, Micronesia, and Polynesia. And those terms harken back to an old French construct, which was used to somehow divide up the Pacific in different regions and different sort of ethnic groupings, if you will. It was a very peculiar kind of reflection that amalgamated uh, a discussion of the size of the islands, Micronesia, along with racial categories, Melanesia or, or the Dark Island. The people of Melanesia are, are, have been largely more darkly complected than the people of Polynesia and Micronesia. But this is really, you know, really sort of digging into the weeds. And it's, a, again, a, a leftover of, of the 1900s. Today, those terms have meaning in as much that the people of the Pacific have taken them on. They don't have meaning in terms of, of you know, the size of your island necessarily or, or uh, your particular uh, pigmentation. It really has to do with just kind of sub-region. So Polynesia is that space that goes from Hawaii uh, south down to around Fiji, sweeps down to, to incorporate New Zealand, and then skirts all the way out uh, to Easter Island off the shores of, of Chile. Uh, Melanesia is that region that really includes just north of Australia. It includes uh, uh, New Guinea, uh, the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, uh, part of Fiji again, just to confuse matters a little bit more, and, uh, and, and really those island countries there, and New Caledonia I should have been mentioned as well. And then Micronesia are those very small islands to the north of uh, Melanesia and to the uh, west of Polynesia that include the islands of, say, the Marshall Islands, the uh, Micronesia, the Federated States of Micronesia, Palau, uh, Kiribati. These are mostly smaller atoll states. So those are the kinds of divisions that we're thinking about uh, so that when you talk to someone who, uh, uh, you know, is, writes about or, or has responsibility for the Pacific Island states, they by and large will mostly use the term Pacific Islands. They may use Oceania in some official context. Uh, for instance, the U.S. Senate recently had a bill introduced which was titled the Honoring Oceania Act. Uh, but it was really about the Pacific Island states, those small Pacific Island states that I just mentioned. That's very interesting, uh, Dr. Titwell. One other thing uh, you think about when um, thinking about Oceania is how politically um, the division is. We know that there are independent countries, uh, but we know that there is still a very strong presence of the European Union and other European countries, uh, such as Britain, uh, through the Pitcairn Island and um, even Australian overseas territories, or like they call them external territories, um, and even and even of New Zealand. Could you tell us a little bit more about this? Like how many independent countries are there? Who has islands from the European countries? Who has still islands in the region? And uh, and um, from the other two big economies in the in the region, who who also has them? So it's interesting when you think about the divisions between uh, the Pacific Islands, there are 14 independent island states. There are a variety of territories, and then there are um, also the category of uh, freely associated states. Uh, the, the 14 countries range in size from, you know, as, as small as, as, for instance, Palau at around 10,000, right up to, to Papua New Guinea, uh, which numbers uh, close to 8 million, and, uh, and sort of everything in between. The freely associated states of those sovereign states uh, include the Marshall Islands, the Micronesia, and Palau 
South that are in free association with the United States. And then you might look to the Cook Islands, which is in free association uh, with New Zealand. It's an interesting observation to make, I think, to, to, uh, to just note that uh, Cook Islanders, while they it's an independent nation state freely associated with uh, New Zealand, the Cook Islanders uh, don't issue a passport. And so it doesn't have any citizens. It has nationals, but not citizens. Uh, but this was part of the process of decolonization. France still has territories in um, in the Pacific, and uh, here we're thinking of uh, French Polynesia and uh, and also the uh, island of New Caledonia. New Caledonia has been in the throes of decolonization. They've gone through a series of votes to look at the process of whether or not they would transition from being a department or a portion of uh, France to becoming an independent nation state. After that third vote, it appears as if, and the vote has always gone for maintaining its current status with France. Uh, it looks as if uh, New Caledonia will, will continue as, as a dependency of, uh, of Paris. The small uh, uh, territories that you mentioned in association with Australia, um, there, there's no plan for those territories to, to be made independent. There, there's no campaign to do so. Um, they are simply too small to be categorized as states in the Australian system, and they so they exist as external territories. Um, there are a variety of other uh, small uh, small entities that, that you mentioned, for instance, uh, Wallace and Futuna. Uh, once again, these are, are small, uh, very small territories, not likely to see any transition towards independence at any time in the near future. And you'd say the same about, about Chile's Easter Island. Uh, so, so that's really kind of the political landscape uh, that we see for these small Pacific Island uh, uh, territories, states, and uh, dependencies. You know, the one thing we, we might also touch upon, just as we're talking about nation states and uh, territories in the Pacific, is to also talk a little bit about Pacific regionalism, because Pacific regionalism is alive and well, and uh, perhaps the, the pinnacle body of Pacific regionalism is the Pacific Forum headquartered in uh, Fiji, uh, in Suva in Fiji. And uh, the Pacific Island Forum uh, has members of the, the independent countries of the Pacific Islands, but interestingly also incorporates the, the French territories as well as members. And so it's a kind of an odd body in as much that it includes sovereign states and states and entities that, that do not achieve that level of independent sovereignty. The Pacific Island Forum is, is a political body. Uh, it has underneath it a variety of, of agencies that uh, go towards the management of resources and uh, giving policy advice and structuring um, things like fishing in the region. The Pacific Island Forum does provide a voice for the Pacific Islanders, most notably, for instance, through the Boy Declaration. The Boy Declaration, and that's spelled B-O-E, but pronounced Boy, the Boy Declaration, was a declaration by the leaders of the Pacific Island uh, Forum uh, that really put down a marker to say that climate change continues to be an existential threat to the Pacific Island countries, but also went further to talk about the threats to security for the Pacific Island states. And importantly, broadened the concern of our security away from just the traditional notions of national security, but to also focus on human security, uh, climate security, environmental security, and even cybersecurity. And uh, there is tre tremendous concern um, amongst the leaders in the Pacific Island countries that their states are really, for all intents and purposes, amongst the most fragile states uh, in the world. Uh, they are fragile in terms of isolation, 
They are fragile in terms of, of sometimes the, the height above sea level. They are fragile in terms of access to potable water. They are free in access in terms of communication and transportation. Um, and though the Pacific Island leaders would never want to think of themselves as fragile because they would point to a very proud tradition of having peopled the Pacific uh, without the aid of modern navigation tools to have traveled all over the Pacific to people those small islands, they nonetheless do, I think, meet the, 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 the category of being fragile. And in that sense, really uh, need to, to uh, draw attention to their, the wide range of security challenges that they face. Professor, it's very interesting actually to think about the idea that um, a Latin American country like Chile has a presence in Oceania. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people think about that. We, we as, I, as I was mentioning, I, I didn't remember anything about Easter Island being um, in Polynesia. But when you think about it, it's not only European countries, but also a Latin American country. One of the biggest economies, I would say, in Latin America that has a, a presence within what we call Oceania, Polynesia, more exactly. Um that's very interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about the U.S. Let's try to focus a little bit more about what are America's interests in this region? How can we explain to our audience what um, American involvement in the region has been? And if there's any type of division with all of these divisions that we have mentioned, if there's any particular region that the United States focus in, and perhaps there's another one in which it has not much historically. Sure. Um, so, Juan, I, one of the things I would mention is is that um, you know the United States has constructed itself as a Pacific country uh, from really some of the earliest periods uh, in American history. Uh, you can think back to the period of whalers coming out of New England, and they would sail across the Pacific, and uh, the American whalers were showing up on the shores of New Zealand and Australia right back in the the uh, beginning of the uh, 19th century. So. Uh, um, you know, the, the United States has considered itself in many respects to be a, a Pacific country from even back in that time. Of course, fast forward with the California gold rush and the expansion of the United States and the, the coastline of the Pacific being an American coastline in, in parts of North America, uh, it gives the United States the bona fides of being a Pacific country. And then following um, uh, the Spanish-American War, uh, the United States became much more in, involved in Pacific Island politics, uh, and, you know, becoming involved in Guam, later becoming involved in, in Hawaii, uh, being involved in, um, in American Samoa. I mean, these all gave American interest, they attracted American interest in the Pacific. In 1908, Theodore Roosevelt sent the uh, what was then called the Great White Fleet across the world, around the world, and it sailed through the Pacific and it visited Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. And uh, it was making a marker, we are a Pacific power. Um, so the United States has had a long, long history in the Pacific. In the contemporary era, uh, the United States uh, is, is very deeply involved in the Pacific by virtue of trade. Uh, you can see the massive uh, uh, trade flows that go across the Pacific Ocean uh, out of Japan and out of out of China uh, and landing on the west coast of the United States. The, the traffic is truly monumental. And so in that sense, that is part of America's interest. You know, it's protecting those lines of trade. Um, the United States focus, therefore, in the Pacific has by and large been uh, in the contemporary era, uh, has been to the North Pacific. 
around those trade flows. But nonetheless, the United States also has a, an abiding interest, albeit not one that has been uh, pressed forward in recent time uh, of, of, of in the South Pacific Island. But in the North Pacific, the United States has three freely is in free association with three states. It has the territory of Guam, the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas Islands, and of course the state of Hawaii. These are all you know reflected of the uh, American interest in the North Pacific. The United States has also doubled down on its relationship with Australia as the, that other Pacific power on the other side of the Pacific uh, through the recent announcement of AUKUS. That is the uh, Australia-UK-US technology sharing agreement that would see the United States and the United Kingdom help build uh, nuclear-powered submarines for Australia. And there would be a number of other technological products that, uh, that would come out of AUKUS. But this is all in a way of kind of underscoring America's Pacific interest. And, uh, and I'm carefully here not using that construct of the Indo-Pacific because my focus in this discussion is on the Pacific itself. On, it, on itself. And, uh, you know, the Indo-Pacific is a discussion for another time. So, you know, there are those who, who sometimes express the concern that the United States' involvement in the Pacific uh, particularly in this contemporary era after the publication in 2017 of the um, National Security Strategy uh, and the, the proclamation, if you will, the identification of China and Russia being revisionist powers and the emergence of strategic competition, that the American interest in the Pacific is purely and solely on the basis of uh, strategic competition with China. And I think everything I've just said kind of underscores and pushes back a little bit about why that's not entirely true. There's a very strong element of truth to it, absolutely. But there are compelling reasons why American interest goes beyond merely interest in China. Thank you, Professor. Um, you just mentioned uh, the Indo-Pacific as, as if it were a very different region from just speaking about the Pacific. Could you please tell us a little bit about what those what the difference is in terms of America's interests in both regions? Sure. I mean, the way I like to think about the Indo-Pacific, and I say to my students, if you were to imagine the Indo-Pacific, the hyphen is sort of centered in Darwin in Australia. Uh, you know, the, the Indo-Pacific is a way of bringing together the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean as a uh, combat command, if you will, as a construct for foreign policy, uh, as a way of imagining the world. And it centers on, uh, you know, an area broadly, Darwin, Northern Territory, Australia, up north uh, into uh, uh, ASEAN countries, into maritime Southeast Asia. And that becomes the centerpiece. And so the Indo-Pacific, to my way of thinking, is shaped a little bit like, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to talk butterflies here for a second. But if you were to imagine, if you were to imagine a butterfly, you know, the the, the Indo-Pacific is centered on the body of the butterfly, which is in Southeast Asia and maritime Southeast Asia, and the wings on one side is the uh, is the Indian Ocean, and on the other side is the India is the Pacific Ocean. And so my discussion today is really on that right wing of the butterfly, the Indo-Pacific. Um, it's a kind of a silly analogy, but it works for me, so just bear with me. Um, but um, one of the big differences, though, on the Pacific is the fact that it is far more densely uh, populated by small island state peoples, um, where you can think about small island states in the uh, Indian Ocean, and you can think about uh, island states like, like Mauritius, for instance, right? Where, where you can think about the uh, the Andaman Islands. Well, the Andaman Islands are are 
you know, part of India. And uh, um, uh, so the number of independent small island states is rather small in the Indian Ocean, whereas in the Pacific, that's the, that when we talk about the peopling of the region of that, of that ocean, we have to focus on those small island states. And that's one of the big differences between that, these two different sides of the butterfly. On the left-hand side, the islands, to the extent that there are many of them, are peopled by either people in independent states, a small number of independent states, but more frequently they're peopled in small islands that belong to larger continental uh, powers, whereas in the Pacific that's not true. Professor, let's talk a little bit about Australia's role in all of this American-Pacific uh, relation. We know that Australia is a relevant player in the region. Uh, we also know that Australia is the biggest contributor to the development of these Pacific states. At least it has been historically. I am not sure what's happening right now, especially with the rise of China and how the numbers have been changing in, changing in recent years. Um, we have things like AUKUS. We have things like, um, uh, as I said, the, the rise of China going on at the moment. How is the U.S. playing within this region and how is Australia becoming either an, an ally or can potentially become an ally or a foe uh, in this in this relationship with the specifically with the with the South Pacific? So Australia and the United States are in lockstep when it comes to uh, promoting uh, a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, in the in the Pacific. So I mean they're they're you know free and open Indo-Pacific broadly, but specifically with regard to the Pacific Islands, they are in lockstep. Uh, New Zealand announced their Pacific reset, which increased their spending by New Zealand uh, in the Pacific Islands. That was followed very quickly by Australia's Pacific reset. I'm sorry, step up. So New Zealand reset, Australia uh, step up, and then the United States Pacific pledge. These three uh, uh, programs promoted the invest the, the, the further investment of funds for the development uh, of Pacific Island countries, um, and they have done this together. They Australia, New Zealand, and the United States are in very close cooperation in the Pacific uh, in this development space. In fact, Australia, the United States, and Japan have collaborated on development efforts in the Pacific Islands in recent uh, years, the past two years in particular. Uh, they have uh, invested in the development of internet cable, um, uh, sent internet cables to Micronesia, uh, Kiribati, Palau. They have also, uh, they're cooperating along with New Zealand in the electrification of Papua New Guinea. Uh, currently, Papua New Guinea is, uh, has, is only about 17% of the population has power. And uh, those four countries uh, that I just mentioned are investing heavily in the further electrification uh, of Papua New Guinea with plans to electrify up to 70% of the island by 2030. So the idea that there is any space between the United States and Australia Australia and New Zealand, I would throw in, would just be wrong. Um, they, they are an absolute lockstep. In fact, in many respects, the United States has even asked Australia to take the lead in the South Pacific. Kurt Campbell recently, at the announcement of the, uh, the Australia chair at uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, Kurt Campbell made a made comment that, that he was looking to for America to be Australia's deputy sheriff in the Pacific. That is to follow Australia's lead in the Pacific when it comes to development spending and engagement with the Pacific Island countries, particularly in the South Pacific. Australia has deep, 
deep involvement in these countries. Uh, it currently can boast, I believe, having an embassy in every Pacific Island country, whereas the United States, I think, has five embassies in the Pacific with an announced new embassy coming in the Solomon Islands, but that would make it six. So, um, you know, Australia has worked very hard to engage with the Pacific. And being that that we have a 70-year-old alliance with Australia, it only makes sense that um, we would look to Australia and, and, and work with them in the Pacific. That's very interesting. I think um, our audience really very seldom listens about, hears about these countries and and how, and how in the end they're very relevant to understanding all of the dynamics of the Pacific. Specifically when we start speaking about China, right? China has been an actor in the region worldwide, of course, but specifically in the region that has been trying to um, has been trying to find its 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 rightful place, like they would put it. And it's it's not a secret for anyone that uh, China and Taiwan have been waging diplomatic recognition war. That some some people call it even like a checkbook diplomacy or a, even a debt trap diplomacy uh, with these countries. How can we understand this um, this situation at the moment? And which countries are currently recognizing one side or the other and why? We know that there are even countries that have recognized and are recognized and recognized again. What do, do these dynamics tell us about these countries and, and, and why is this happening? Yeah, look, that, that's a great question, Juan. So, you know, if you if you put yourself in the context of a Pacific Island country, imagine for a moment that you are the president of Kiribati. It's a small uh, Micronesian country lying roughly on the equator. Uh, your population is small. Your exports are small. You are profoundly aid dependent. And someone comes by and makes a promise of funds that will help support your economy. You'll listen to them. And quite frankly, as long as they don't ask you to do too much for it, even even better. And uh, and that I think pretty well encapsulates the motivation of these countries. They are not doing calculations based upon uh, the the high politics of international relations. They are making calculus on what's best for their citizenry. And whether that's through Taiwan or it's through uh, uh, Beijing, for most Pacific Island leaders, really isn't that important. Um, now you will find stories. Uh, from some Pacific Island leaders who who have comments to make about the Chinese as as uh, uh, development partners. Um, President Whips in uh, Palau uh, is on record of being incredibly opposed to Chinese development assistance. And the story was rather simple for, for uh, Palau. The Chinese began to pump up uh, tourists and to uh, sell block tourist uh, holidays to vacation makers to go to uh, to Palau. So we had Chinese citizens from the PRC going to Palau, and then um, the PRC made the ask, what you need to change your recognition from, from uh, Taiwan to uh, Beijing. Uh, Palau refused. They said, we didn't want to do that. We're good friends with, with Taiwan. We enjoy that relationship. We're not going to change. And so the Chinese withdrew their uh, holiday makers. They effectively stopped selling bulk tickets uh, to Palau. And so the tourism rates dropped tremendously. They went, I think, from 10,000 visitors one year to less than 3,000. And, uh, you know, it left a big, big financial hole in, in uh, Palau. But what it did there was break the trust that, that or any growing trust that Palau may have had with Beijing. 
so that now the president of Palau, uh, President Whips, is adamant he would never recognize Beijing. And Ote Tong makes similar kinds of comments about um, about his his time as president of Kiribati. Tong is on record of saying uh, that the Chinese were not good development partners. Um, that they that they sometimes made too many asks that were that were just really beyond the pale. And uh, so Tong was was not a supporter uh, of Pacific Island countries uh, supporting um, Beijing, uh, recognizing Beijing. But to say that, you know, those are two stories. There are other leaders who have a very different kind of experience. And so, you know, I don't think you want to I don't think you want to overgeneralize uh, because there still are lots of Pacific Island countries that are willing to, to, to work with the Chinese. Again, because their financial need is so great, their level of tolerance may be higher than others. That's very interesting. Um, I feel like we can we can divide these countries in in many different groups. Like sometimes maybe even considers that consider some of them like being uh, more pro China, others a little bit more pro Taiwan, depending on, on on what their interests are at the moment, their presidencies, their political parties. However, um, I would say that there are two cases that have struck me. Um, very interesting, which are basically that of uh, Nauru, I would say. I would say specifically Nauru, actually. Uh, there might be another one, but it escapes, uh, it escapes me right now. Um, Nauru has recognized and unrecognized and recognized again. And, 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 and it's kind of still in that, in that ambiguous situation of, of basically going with the one that gives, gives the country, I guess, the, the, the most funding for um, for whatever they want to do in the country. Um, recently, I think Kiribati also, I think it was Kiribati, you, you would correct me if I'm wrong, um, uh, the president of Kiribati also wanted some airplanes uh, from uh, the Taiwanese government, and because um, they didn't get them, they basically unrecognized Taiwan and recognized uh, the PRC. It, it sometimes sounds a little bit, a little bit unstable when it comes to uh, the confidence that the government in Taiwan uh, can have regarding uh, the recognition of these countries. Do you think? Do you think this is this is going to be the pattern, uh, uh, basically from now on, uh, with these countries? Well, you know, it's a competitive market, and um, you know, uh, Taipei and Beijing are are in constant struggle for for recognition. And as you well know, that the number of countries that recognize uh, Taipei is is declining. Um, and you know, this battle is taking place not just in the Pacific, but of course in uh, Latin America as well, uh, with a recent um, activity in. Um, in uh, Central America around the recognition of, uh, of Beijing and Taiwan. Um, so, you know, I think that it's just a constant sort of toing and froing. You know, the Obama years uh, were very peaceful or very calm when it came to recognition, changing in recognition. I think there was only one country to flip in that eight year period in the Pacific. Uh, the Trump years, we saw, you know, I think three countries flip. And uh, so, you know, it's a dynam dynamic market. And, you know, just because a country goes one way doesn't mean that it won't go back the other. Uh, we were just talking about Caribbean. Um, uh, you know, Caribbean at one time recognized Beijing. Beijing used that uh, that official relationship with the uh, the country of Caribbean to put in a space tracking station into Caribbean, and then uh, a, a few years later, Caribbean uh, changed its its recognition and uh, recognized Taiwan. And uh, overnight, the Chinese. Uh, space monitoring station packed up and went home. From the United States perspective, um, this recognition war um, in one respect is kind of unimportant. Um, it is of no particular matter. In another perspective, it's a pivotal matter because it presents an opportunity for uh, a strategy of denial on the cheap. 
you know, it's much easier to have a strategy of denial and when you can simply say to a nation state, change recognition and uh, you move your recognition away from Beijing and suddenly uh, Beijing doesn't have access to your ports. Uh, official Beijing doesn't have access to your ports any longer. They can't put in uh, government officials to monitor activities and, and can't put in things like space monitoring stations. So, you know, I think that the, 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 the contest for recognition will pl continue to play out. I think it's important to recognize really what, what its real consequence is. At the end of the day, you know, Beijing can in, can influence a small island country even if it doesn't ha have official recognition. Uh, the Marshall Islands, I believe, has a larger number of PRC citizens than the Federated States of Micronesia. But the Federated States of Micronesia recognizes Beijing, whereas the Marshall Islands recognizes Taiwan. So the correlate, there's no real strong correlation between this the idea of recognition and the presence of citizens from one country or another. Uh, it's a complex space. But I think from an American perspective, the, the way to think about it in terms of strategic competition is through the lens of a strategy of denial. That's the way the Trump administration was certainly uh, uh, thinking about it. Um, by, by changing recognition, you were actually denying access to Beijing uh, of, of a Pacific Island country. It's funny to think that that's the way that 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 it works in the Pacific. Um, you you would you would expect that to have like a much more bigger, I guess, um, uh, role in the vision that we have of, of 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 what these countries are actually planning to do with their future and so on. But it seems like it's it it's just a president in turn. Um, uh, kind of like um, just to accommodate the president in turn, or the or the or the or the or the political party in turn in these countries. I, I want to remind our audience, by the way, that Kiribati is uh, only two thousand miles away from uh, Hawaii. It's probably the independent country that's the closest to uh, Hawaii, to the U.S. Pacific fleet. So. These satellite um, installations that were in Kiribati really posed a potential threat for the United States security um, in Hawaii. And this is why it's so important understanding what's going on in these islands and, and understanding what China actually is doing at the moment in these, in these, in these really small but relevant islands from the point of view of, of geography and geopolitics. Professor, I would like to go back a little bit to what we we're talking about before on the compact of uh, the compacts of free association that the U.S. currently has with the Marshall Islands, Palau, and the Federated States of Micronesia. We understand that this historical relation comes from after World War II, and um, but but we we always hear that term. We always hear that you know uh, the Marshall Islands are in free association with the U.S., but. But what does that actually mean, first of all, and what it's going to happen with the renewal of these compacts in the upcoming years? Because if I'm not mistaken, Palawan, um, the Palawan Compact of Free Association comes to an end in 2023. And uh, for the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia, it comes to an end in 2022. What has the Biden administration uh, done so far uh, to show its intent to, uh, to renew this, uh, this compact? And what are the challenges? Yeah, thank you. Um, so so uh, I, I would just like to correct the dates a little bit. I think you're one year early on both of those. I think that it's 2023 uh, for the Marshall Islands and um, uh, Micronesia and 2024 for Palau. Sorry, just, just a slight adjustment there. The, the Compacts of Free Association were effectively part of a development campaign by the United States after the decolonization of the trust territories after World War II. The compacts were designed for the United States to administer 
and defend these island countries. So the United States is effectively responsible for the defense of the compact states. Furthermore, we, uh, through those compacts, through those agreements, actually, uh, as part of them, insist that no foreign power can operate its navy through the the EEZ or the territorial waters of those compact states. So again, back in that comment about strategy of denial, the compacts represent a significant strategy of denial in the North Pacific. The compacts, the quid pro quo, if you will, for that defense is that we agreed to pay uh, the compact states a sum of money. That sum of money comes in the form of a number of different things. Some of it is services in kind, and some of it is through the uh, allocation of funds for uh, the budgets of those nation states. So they are heavily dependent upon the United States, and uh, all three states are currently facing, you know, effectively a, a financial cliff. If the, the compacts aren't refunded, if we don't put money back into them, uh, they will face uh, you know, a shortfall of funds ranging anywhere between 40 to 60% of their, of their government budgets. And that is a tremendous cliff to be facing. So they're actually having to start planning now in the eventuality that the United States doesn't come to the table. I think on balance, the United States will come to the table and will refund those compacts. And uh, the Trump administration uh, began that process uh, quite noticeably by inviting the presidents of the three compact states to the White House. And uh, he was the, the, was the first American president to, to welcome uh, the presidents of these compact states in the White House. They then went to Capitol Hill. And uh, at the reception, the then chairman of the uh, House Subcommittee on the Pacific Islands, Brad Sherman, stood up in front of an audience and, you know, pounded the table and swore up and down that the compact funding would be passed in that year. And that was two years ago. And of course, everyone knew it wasn't going to happen. But, you know, we all, I think, appreciated uh, the thought behind it. So there are a number of things that the compacts do that, that are really important. Uh, for the Pacific Island states in terms of living everyday life. The Postal Service provides services to the compact states, and so it makes the transportation of goods far less expensive for the Pacific Islanders. Uh, Medicaid provisions are extended to Pacific Island peoples in the compact states. Uh, FEMA plays a critical role in in managing uh, hazards and disasters when they hit uh, the compact states. So in so many ways, they are deeply ingrained into the U.S. Uh, uh, system of governance, if you will. And these three democratic states uh, are in the process of negotiating with the United States the refunding of the compacts. That, that process started under the Trump administration. It was slowed profoundly by COVID. Uh, you know, people wanted to meet face to face. It's very hard to negotiate over Zoom. Um, the compact states had effectively put a ban on the movement of people into their countries. They were desperate to protect their populations from COVID. And you remember, of course, we had a long period of time where there were no vaccines. So negotiations ground to a halt. They have picked up a little bit um, after the introduction of vaccines. And uh, so there have been uh, some meetings in Hawaii, but more progress needs to be made. Um, the Biden administration uh, really needs to uh, put the, the, the foot to the pedal and get, get moving on these things. The difficulty, of course, that one faces is that they have to be fund passed by Congress, and they're not without issue. Uh, because the citizens of the Compacts of Free Association have access to the U.S. labor market, that they can come here to the United States without a visa, means that uh, they end up 
um, effectively as um, wards of the state sometimes, and that's perhaps a heavy term, but they end up you know, coming to Hawaii or going to Guam or, or going to Arkansas. There's a large Marshall Island population in, in uh, Arkansas. And, um, you know, if, if they're unemployed, the, the state pays them unemployment insurance. And so part of the compact funding isn't just funding to go to the three compact states. It's also compensating the states for expenditure that uh, the, those states that house or are home to a large number of the uh, compact state diaspora. So it's a complex issue and it will take more time to kind of get our way through. Things have, have kind of slowed down at the moment and we need to get them going again. Professor, just to wrap up this, uh, what, what has been personally for me a wonderful episode uh, in the podcast, can you please tell us how can the U.S. really improve its security cooperation in the region? You wrote a marvelous article called Being a Better Partner in the Pacific in the Texas National Security Review, War on the Rocks, uh, that I recommend anybody listening to this podcast to read thoroughly. Um, but could you please um, mention what are those five points that you recommend the U.S. should focus on to improve uh, this cooperation in the region, please? Sure. So, you know, I think one of the most significant things that the U.S. can do is it can it can use um, some funds from the Pacific uh, Deterrence Initiative uh, to to help promote um, effectively uh, not only the defense of Pacific Island countries, but also, frankly, to support jobs. Um, and and I know that sounds almost you know, <laughs> it's you can do two things at once. Um, so the Pacific Deterrence Inif Initiative, the PDI, was a way of allocating funds specifically in the Pacific to uh, counter Chinese actions in the Pacific and in East Asia. So the Pacific Deterrence Initiative has funds, for instance, for forward positioning of uh, material, uh, for upgrading air bases, uh, for um, improving uh, harbors. So it's not unreasonable to think that there are are places where the United States could spend small amounts of money relative to the $8.6 billion of the last PDI that I saw. And I'm sure that uh, there, there's more money in there now. But, um, you know, you can use small amounts of money uh, to do forward positioning of material, for instance, uh, that would employ people in the Pacific. And, you know, you're not employing a lot of people, but it makes a big difference to people's lives. So using the PDI money as a way, as, a, as an adjunct for development dollars, it advances U.S. interests. It advances U.S. defense interests, and it helps people in the Pacific. Secondly is funding the uh, compacts of free association that we just talked about, and a critical part of that would be actually nominating, well, a critical part of that is being sure that those compacts get done this year uh, before the 2022 election, if we can possibly do it. Uh, I think that would be most helpful. Third uh, would be uh, Congress should should look to embrace the language of interagency working groups uh, that's used, for instance, in the Maritime Safe Act. And the reason I point to the Maritime Safe Act, which is an act that specifically focuses on illegal, uh, unreported, and unregulated fishing in uh, both the Pacific and the Atlantic. And what that interagency working group that is des described and mandated by the act, uh, Congress envisioned what they would otherwise call a whole of government solution. And they nominated the different agencies that must participate and the allocated funding that would support those groups to work together. Uh, they nominated who would run the interagency working group, and they, they gave specific goals to the interagency working group. Anyone in Washington would know that most interagency working groups are a headache. They're dysfunctional, and they don't work. 
work. That's why Congress took to actually laying out the specifics and mandating through the legislation how the interagency working group would work. Because so much of the work in the Pacific cuts across agencies and cuts across departments in the United States. When Congress legislates on issues related to the Pacific Island countries, it's incumbent upon Congress to incorporate language that would govern the uh, interagency working group to ensure that it does what it's supposed to do. Uh, the final point I would make is that for all of this, we need a Pacific coordinator. We need someone at the level of ambassador with deep U.S. government experience, notably not me, but someone with deep career experience at the level of ambassador who reports to the White House to effectively coordinate uh, U.S. engagement with Pacific Island countries, because it's not uh, an adjunct of U.S. engagement in, in Asia. Kurt Campbell, bless his soul, is a, is a wonderful spokesperson for things in Asia, and he is the administration's point person on the Indo-Pacific. What the administration needs to recognize is that Kurt Campbell's focus is not in the Pacific Islands. We need someone who understands the Pacific Islands, who understands the challenges, and can really, uh, you know, ride the horse across the finish line to get those compacts funded uh, to, to ensure that Congress is, is well briefed and understands the issues of the Pacific. Uh, someone who can work closely with our allies and partners in the region to ensure that the needs of the Pacific get addressed. Without knowing any of the other candidates, uh, Dr. Didwell, I think you would be an excellent coordinator for the South Pacific if the uh, U.S. government ever wanted to actually uh, make you that uh that, that, that person. Um, anyway, thank you very much, Dr. Titwell, for your time today and great insights in this area of the world we seldom delve into. As a conclusion to what has been an excellent moment with you, I would like to ask you if there's any type of advice you would like to give to our students, especially those that are currently studying China, U.S. homeland security, and Oceania. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would say two things to to uh, to, to students currently studying. Uh, one is to to consider incorporating um, uh, writing about uh, the Pacific Islands in your in your work. Uh, consider the role of the Pacific Islands uh, in in um, in the problems that you're trying to address. But I also know that students go out and they go to events and they listen to officials and they listen to other academics talk about the world. And I would say, ask questions, ask questions about the Pacific, ask questions about Oceania and how the United States can work with its allies in the Pacific and force people to make comment, force people to reflect upon, frankly, what they probably don't know about the Pacific. To all our listeners out there, this is the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review. Please check out the summary of this episode to find out more information about our guests and subscribe to the podcast so that you can be notified of the release of our next episode.